Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hello. How are you doing, my little honey? Doing good. Had a good week so far. Um, it's coming close to the end, but like, it was good. It was good. You know, my boss was really happy with some of the projects I was working on. We were able to, we were able to uh, get the whole project done two and a half days in advance. So that's pretty good. Um, just trudging through my day, trudging through my week. How about you? Hey, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, uh, busy, but busy is good. Okay. And um, I've, um, I've, I've been, actually, I've gotten a few more piano students. Oh, nice. And yeah, I really enjoy working with these kids. I, I find it's better to, um, I was thinking about the way I was taught and the way I used to teach when I first started giving piano lessons, like years and years ago when I was in my 20s. And um, when I was taking piano lessons, there was very little emphasis on just having a little bit of fun and picking out songs on the piano and matching them to chords and playing chords in a you know, nice, really like rhythmic way to have, you know, that way you can have a little fun. No, everything was note pounding, note pounding, note pounding, classic, you know, I love classical music, believe me. And there's a lot to gain, be gained from it and piano technique. But you, unless you have a child that shows a lot of promise for actually being a concert performer, if you've just got a normal child that wants to take piano lessons for their own enjoyment, then you can't constantly note pound. You have to let them have a little fun with the piano. Yeah, I mean, I kind of realized that when I when I picked up guitar, like after, when I was in college and I was in yeshiva, like I really enjoyed just finding a good song, picking up the chords and just playing the good playing that song. And after I played the same song over and over and over again, I knew what chords were what. I knew the C chord, the G chord, the D chord. I knew where everything was, and I think that was a good way of pounding notes. Because it's from a song I want to play. It's a song I already know. It's a song that I enjoy. And I could do it over and over and over again. I think, you know, a lot of parts, we talked about this in previous episodes, when it comes to education, there's this very dry way of learning that I, I don't think is very productive. And we're slowly shifting away from that. Yes, I, I agree with that exactly. And there was also, I remember studying piano and hearing also from other friends of mine who were studying piano. And even um, just a few years ago, um, I would talk to adults who'd studied years ago and oh my goodness, the horror stories about if you played a wrong note, oh my gosh, if you played a wrong note, oh man, you were stupid, aren't you paying attention? Look at the music, what are you supposed to be playing? You know, like, you know it's kind of like negative uh, feedback and one woman told me she had this, uh, either a European or Japanese teacher, some, not an American teacher, some teacher from a foreign country who used to sit there with a ruler. And if a student played a wrong note, she'd smack your hands, your fingers oh with the ruler. So, I, so whenever I get a new student, I first I want them to relax. I want them to get used to the instrument because especially for a little child, um, well, now we have the electric keyboards that are not as dwarfing the kids can feel more comfortable with. But I want them to feel comfortable with the keyboard or comfortable with if they're, paying a, if they're playing a regular full-size piano. And so I let them just take their fingers 
and just go all around the keys and go up and down and up and down and just play, 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 play. Just, you know, the black keys, the white keys up and down, you know, just get used to the feel of the piano. And then when we start new actual serious music, I jokingly say to them, now, you know what will happen if you play a wrong note. And they go, what? I go, the whole piano is going to explode. And then we're all <laughs> going to go up in a ball of fire. And they all, of course, they laugh. And I, I said, you don't believe me? They go, no. I go, darn it. How come nobody believes when I say that? But I said to them, you know what really happens when you play a wrong note? You know what we do about it? They go, what? You know, you simply play the right note. You go back, play the right note, and practice it a few times. And then we go on. It's not, it's, it's okay. You, your eye tell them you're allowed to play wrong notes. You're allowed to make mistakes. It's funny you said, because I was thinking about that today. I was dealing with, um, dealing with, with some stuff in, in, in my, in my work where we had an engineer and we gave them the plans to look over on Tuesday because everything is due on Friday and here it's Thursday morning and they're saying that they never received it. And we backtracked and we saw that they received it on Tuesday. They just didn't do anything about it. Whoa. And, you know, it's very upsetting. But in my head, I'm like, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to yell and scream at them? Like, what is that going to help? What is that going to solve? Just get it done. I don't care. Yeah. You know, it's just, just, that's really how I feel. Like, I don't, like, I get it. Okay. You probably got over bogged down with more work. Clearly this happened. You let the ball drop. Just admit you let the ball drop. Let's move on. I don't care. Just, we need this done by Friday. You know, we really Sounds need this good. done by Friday. Sounds and good to me. Yeah, it's just, just, that's kind of how, how I feel like how work usually should go. Because you get a lot of people that get their emotions involved. They get so heated and they get so connected to everything. And they, they you know, get really upset and take things very personally. I'm like, it's just a building. We need to get this done. All right, you, it's funny you mentioned about taking things personally. It's that way too, I find that with music, that especially when I teach voice, voice especially, that people, um, that people who are playing instruments or singing, if they make a wrong note or if they don't quite hit that note when they're singing or it, it, their vo the voice cracks or the voice screeches or something like that, they really take it very, very personally. And I have to explain to them, look, it, it's okay. This is, it's not like, this is not going to make you a bad person. This is not going to make you um, a, like a horrible, poor excuse for a human being. I said, it's an instrument. We can go back. We can, you know, try another technique. And um, especially with voice, like voice is something that it's hard, even for a professional singer, it's hard not to take vocal technique personally because it's not like it's a separate instrument now. This is part of you. And so if you, if your voice cracks or if your voice goes flat, or if you're trying to get that note and it, instead it just screeches. So it's hard to not feel really badly about yourself. And it's hard to try to separate yourself a little bit and say, okay, that singing technique I was using obviously did not work. Let's go back. Let's try opening up your mouth a little longer Let's try um, some exercises to get the back of your throat open more. And let's look over here where your voice was starting to like, where you were starting to lose it, where your voice was starting to just screech. And then we go, I go back, say a couple of notes from just at that spot. And we sing each note 
very, very carefully, very slowly, and we take a half step at a time, like from an A, A sharp, from A sharp to B, from B to C, C, C sharp, and we do it very slowly, very gradually, until we get right to that place where their throat just totally, you know, like snapped or screeched. And if we do it that way, then they're able to get to that high note, and now it sounds nice. Especially, I was working with a boy uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um, it, working with um, this boy is uh, 13 years old. And okay. working with a 13 year old boy can be very difficult because their voices are starting to change. Mm. And so you're dealing, you're dealing with that too, with the fact that their voices are starting to change. But and also, sad. and also another problem with working with a boy is boys and men have that falsetto that women and girls don't. They have that extra flap of skin over the glottis, which, um, or the glottis is another word, medical term for the, the, what we call the vocal cords. Yeah. And when they switch to that, it's, you know, um, I have trouble getting them to realize that they can control it, that they don't, in, in serious singing, they don't use falsetto. We don't want, Boys or men singing falsetto with serious singing. I said, what do you mean I serious singing, like like opera. Okay, as a, yeah, right. Serious classical singing. Um, and so I tell these boys that I'm working with, you can sing when it comes to a pop song or a rock song. You know, uh, like Frankie Valli like and Four Seasons. Yeah, right. They use falsetto. <laughs> they were known for using falsetto. I said, you can use anything you want. You can scream. You can use your falsetto. You know, whatever you like. I said, but when it comes to actual serious vocal technique in serious music, we don't want you using falsetto. And it's hard for them at first to not flip into that, to not actually slip in to the use of falsetto, to try to control it. Hmm. Now, I actually have a musical question. Um, what songs trigger good memories for you? Oh my goodness. I remember, I must've been about, <coughs> I think nine or 10 years old. I remember riding in the car with my father and he's playing the radio. And there was a song, I don't know which group did it. Was it the Crystals? I used to like the Crystals, the Crystals song, you know, the, um, just the way he walks down the street, just the way he shuffles up his feet. My, he holds his head up high when he goes walking by. He's my guy when he holds my hand. I'm so proud because he's not just one of the crowd. It's just, you know, uh, what's it called? He's the rebel. That he's the rebel, nice, that's what it's called? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that one very much. You know, just, I said memories of driving in the car with my parents and seeing the clouds, like a nice, a, a nice either fall or spring or summer day where the sky is clear and there's some pretty white clouds and the sun is shining. And I'm listening to that song. I remember also um, this one that had a really good beat. I don't know if it was the Crystals or another group, but it was, Ooh, you, wee you, whoop, wee you. I hear dancing, I hear the fun and the beat. It's about someone, it's about a girl who's um, like at this dance club 
and everyone's dancing and she hears the music. And I don't know all the lyrics, but for some reason, the guy who's in charge of letting body, everybody in the club won't let her in. And she's banging on the door. She goes, come on and let me in. I thought you were my friend. I have a feeling that she didn't have the money to pay for the entrance fee. And the guy who's manning the door is a friend of hers, but he still won't let her in. And she hears everybody dancing and she hears the beat of the music and she wants to come in and he's not letting her in. That's hilarious. I love it. Anyway, I was thinking about your profession, the profession yeah. of architecture. Architecture, And I have some questions for you. Okay. Sure. Have you ever fantasized about structures that are way, way out of the box? Like I was thinking about, you told me with, the, with one of the architectural companies you worked with that they were hired to uh, remodel a strip joint on the block. Now yeah. I can think of some real interesting structures that would be out of the box for that one. Well, actually, my one of my favorite buildings. It's I think it's in Poland. It's this uh, group of buildings that look like it looks like everything is all warped, and I don't know which architect did that, but it looked like a warped building um, in Poland. It's yes, it's called the the Krysiek Domek, the little crooked house, and it is the coolest thing I can think of. Like it is just, it, it, it reminds me of like the, um, it reminds me of like Inception and also like in cartoons where like houses are bouncing up and down, you know, where like inanimate objects are bouncing coming down uh -huh. and just the whole facade looks absolutely, for me, I find it stunning. It's, I, I love it. I love it so With much. Was this an old building or is it a fairly new building? Uh, it's a fairly new building. I think it was mm -hmm. built in 2004. Mm. Yeah, it just, it looks, it, it's just, it, it's so funny. It just looks like a, a, a totally warped house. So you're looking at it straight on and that's exactly what it looks like. And you think that your eyes are playing tricks on you. So with the, uh, the house is like crooked or it's- Yes, uh... it's called a little crooked house. Oh my gosh. It's located in Poland. The, the, the mm -hmm. Krzywi Domek. It's, it's just, I, I would love to see it. How That's... are they able though, I mean, with building materials, how are they able to like make a crooked structure like that? Especially like, I, I assume it's crooked in that it's flowing, it's flowing crooked. Or is it jagged? Oh, no, it's crooked. crooked. It, well, it's flowing crooked. It's flowing so how, crooked. So what? So what materials can they use to get that flow? Honestly, the way I think about it structurally, I would think that they probably have to have a lot of joints, a lot of pieces together. But once you get all those pieces together in a certain way, in a like in like a spline, a spline is like a a, a line with a lot of little pieces, and if you have all these little pieces together, you have to be very meticulous about it, but it's very doable. It's very doable. It's just very meticulous. Um, you have to have a lot of lot of moving parts. Because when um, sometimes when I look at buildings, even some of the buildings that you showed me from the Spandero and um, what's his name, Gary? Frank Gary. Yeah. Frank Gary. It's still the basic, how do you say it? 
box-like structure. It's still a box. You know what I mean? Really? But when you, when, the box? I, but I don't when think I, so. When I saw the, the structures that I saw, but they, were, they, they weren't flowing. They were still pretty much, you know, I guess rectangular. It was basically, I guess, because that's, they look, I guess you have to, you, you have to combine creativity with actual structure. How can I say that? Structure doable. Yeah, you have yeah. the thing is you have restraints called reality. And architects really push engineers to think outside the box, really think forward and and push the limitations of what's capable. Um, you know, that that's that's you know, one of the things that architects pride themselves on is that they tell the engineers to figure it out and we will help you all along the way. And we have our own ideas of what we could do, but it's it takes a, a, a lot of engineering, a lot of ingenuity, and it, it it takes also a lot of guts because you're dealing with clients that don't want to lose money. They mm -hmm. really got to be careful. And if you're spending all this money with all these brilliant ideas, like those ideas better follow through. You know what I mean? Like they, mm -hmm. they are not, because clients aren't, aren't, aren't putzing around. They want stuff done. They want on a tight budget. They want on a tight schedule. And you got to meet those criteria. You got to get that stuff done. Plus, you also have your own personal wants and needs and drives as an architect and a designer to get, you know, these things through. I was thinking about um, some buildings that I've seen that are out of the box. There's the um, Opera House in Sydney, Australia. That's very famous for being very, very different. I remember um, also the Guggenheim Museum. That's not a box at all. That's a round. That's a that's a big round circle. Yeah. It's, I mean... And that's why I'm wondering, I wonder, like, how were they able to get, is it like wet concrete and you take something like a big, like a big spatula that just, you know, go around it to create the, the round shape? Like I said before, it's just yeah. round, round is just straight lines at shorter, shorter periods. Uh -huh. No, it, it's the illusion of round. It's the illusion of round. Because realistically, you know, you, you, when you're, when you're, bending something you're you got to be careful with the steel you got to be careful with everything that's get put together and when you bend a, a steel you got to make sure you don't get it past its yield point which would cause it to completely break Ooh. so you got to fat you got to engineer and factor in you know what kind of steel are you using or what kind of other material are you using how much is that going to cost is it cheaper to do another way you know we don't want to do anything in the field. You want to kind of have things prefabricated. That's the best idea. You know, you want to avoid having, in America at least, you want to avoid having a lot of, you know, hands involved uh, because it just, it makes it cost more. Material is cheaper, but labor is more expensive. Interesting. I, well, I remember um, when I was teaching fourth grade in New York that we went to you know, JFK for a field trip. And the tour guide was talking about at that time, the TWA building, the TWA building was like very unusual. It had all these, uh, it was almost like, it was very similar to the, um, uh, the opera house in Sydney where you had these big bending like wings that were bending up and down, that, you know, that were flowing, like you know, these flowing wings. And he said that the, architect who designed it, the way that he designed it was one morning he was eating, it was a very, it was a rather famous story. He was eating a grapefruit 
and he had, you know, peeled, of course, the peels away on the grapefruit in, in like sections. And yeah. then he looked at the shell, as he looked at the peel, at these big peels, sections of peel, and he like stacked them up and he put them together in a form. And he said, that would be great for the building I'm designing for the TWA building. And that's what he used. And that's why the TWA building had this very, very unusual structure. Yeah. Yeah. It's hey, go ahead. You had some more questions. Yes. I will go ahead. Let's finish architecture. Cause I want to go into another topic. Okay. Well, I was going to tell you that, um, there's a, a few, a few shuls, temples, however you call it, um, mm -hmm. in Baltimore uh, that were built by very famous architects. Um, I don't have the information offhand, but basically, like the the architects that built it were very famous, very well renowned, um, and a lot of them are in the registry of the historical places. Wow. Can you, can you, do you know exactly which shuls they were, or who it was? I know, I know Temple uh -huh. of Shalom, that uh -huh. one. And I know the other shul, the ones that look like uh, ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> I'm trying to think which one looks like an ice cream sandwich. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, you know the, 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 where OCA is? Uh, Across from Oak Shalom? Across from Oak Shalom? Is it in this OC? I thought was in the same building mm, as Ohab Shalom. I think it is. I think you're right. Yeah, that's yeah, it's, in the, it's in the back, right? It's in the back of yeah. the building. Yeah, but the, the other one across from Ohab Shalom. Yeah. I, meant, your I meant the other your father, one across. Your father, your father used to call, call Ohab Shalom Ohab Shalom. Ohab Shalom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know that uh, Temple Bethel. I remember in the 1960s when they first built it. Yeah. We used we used to call it the Whale. Why? Because it, because it went it went up and down the, the the architecture of the building went up and down like 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 the back of a whale oh that's cute i was i was in, of course i was in junior high school at the time but everybody laughed and called it the whale because of that funny. structure <laughs> really and then funny. there was and then there was um no offense please no offense anybody who are attending these synagogues or temples please we're just having a little yeah fun walter Gropius. sorry i just yeah. walter <laughs> Gropius. he was a very famous architect he he designed temple of shalom that's amazing yeah, that is very interesting to have. A, uh, were there any other synagogues or temples that were designed by a, like very famous architects? In general, or in Baltimore? Yeah, in Baltimore. Oh, in Baltimore, um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. Um, there are a few, but I want to really think about. Yeah, Baltimore Hebrew Congregation. Um, I'm trying to think. Baltimore Hebrew uh, was. I'm trying to think. Baltimore Hebrew was designed by, um, I'll try to remember. Um, uh, I'm, try, I, I, I remember. I, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, but I, I, I'm, uh -huh. I, I can't do that at the same time as, yeah. uh, as whatever. Well, there, uh, there's this, well, I, one of the things, I remember when they first built Beth the Fella, um, I hate to say it, please no offense to people attending Beth the Villa, but no offense. everybody kind of everybody kind of laughed at it because they said it reminded them of a circus tent. Really? <laughs> Where the sanctuary is. They have that big uh, that big top that looks like a the top of a circus tent. Oh yeah, yeah. So what were the questions you were at, you were gonna ask? 
Oh yeah, I want to bring up a topic. I wanted to confess something that that I and many other Jewish mothers suffer from. Okay. It's called Jewish mother sy syndrome. Now I have analyzed it and I've come up with a list of symptoms. First of all, we those who suffer from Jewish mother syndrome usually find themselves slipping into the role of a lay amateur psychologist or social worker. Okay. We find ourselves functioning even though we might not have degrees in those fields, except that remember one time at your at Hani's Vort, I met so many of her friends that were getting their degrees in psychology that I, the next, that there was, I think the fifth young woman who told me she was getting her degree in psychology, I said to her, oh, you mean Jewish studies. That's cute. That's really cute. Then, okay. Then another symptom is cooking and buying too much food because you suffer from the constant fear of people going hungry, either guests or your family. Yes. So you oh, you cook too much food and you buy too much food. Yes, always yes. Fear. You, you don't want people to go hungry. Yes. Then, okay, here's, and here's the third symptom I came up with. Const, looking at constant anxiety actually being a positive path to excellence. Yes. Without yes. that constant anxiety, you wouldn't work hard enough to be excellent in your air in your field. I actually agree with that. I had this whole conversation with Ruthie about that. That I think that that anxiety, like you have to do better, you're not going to do good enough. Like that is a good drive. That's a good push. You know, at least that's that. I that's that's how I I feel. <laughs> I was thinking of that too, but the only problem is so. Why is it in our society we try to avoid anxiety? We go to psychologists and psychiatrists. We get ourselves on medication. We do everything we can to avoid anxiety instead of embracing it and looking at it as a positive aspect. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's a positive thing. I, that's what I believe. That's what I, I, I truly, truly believe. Yeah, just like the generation before us looked at verbal and emotional child abuse as part of good upbringing. Well, how else would you raise your kids? <laughs> anyway, so um, what do you think about the idea of the you know Jewish mother have functioning very often as the lay amateur psychologist or sociologist or social worker? Oh, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a, I I think that's kind of part part and parcel of uh, the Jewish experience. Yes, I guess. I guess there's, I thought we could really go into this topic, but I guess there's not too much to discuss well, because I think, it is so obvious. <laughs> I, 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 you know what, I think I agree with you. It is kind of obvious. It's like, no, like, of course. Maybe we could talk about it um, next week, next time because we're kind of running out of time. Um, so we'll, we'll mark that in for next episode, uh, Jewish course, psychology. Yeah. I love that. Yes, yes. Psychology. Excellent. Yeah, what is it with Jew, Jews? Yeah, that'd be a good Jews and psychology, like, oh, and um, the Jewish guilt. Jews, Jewish psychology, guilt. the Jewish guilt. I yes. noticed that. Like, um, I, well, I, you know, you know, I had, I had, I have had varied um, educational experiences in different cultures. Yes. And um, taught kids from different cultures, attended schools from different cultures, and I noticed that the whereas non-Jewish kids in certain circumstances will use, uh, how can I say it, physical aggression. 
that Jews usually use psychological aggression. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Probably because we weren't. I don't know. We, we'll have some. We'll have some more ideas. We'll talk about it later. I, I wrote it all down. It'll be a great discussion. Okay, my sweetness. All right. So you have a good job, sweetheart. All right. We'll do. You too, Ima. Love you too. Love you. Bye, bye, darling. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook at Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I know you would like it, and my mother would too.